Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about global oncology with Dr. Donna Spiegelman. Dr. Spiegelman is the Susan Dwight Bliss Professor of Biostatistics at the Yale School of Public Health, and Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. So Donna, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your research, and the work that you've been doing in global oncology. Okay, sure. So um, I am, by professional training, a joint biostatistician and epidemiologist, meaning where biostatistics is the use of statistics and even more broadly mathematics to address and solve public health problems and problems in, in medicine and healthcare. And epidemiology traditionally has been the study of the distribution and causes of different diseases, both in the United States and around the world. And biostatistics is uh, basically the primary tool that's used by ep epidemiologists to address questions such as what are the causes of cancer, how can we prevent it, and so forth. And so your work kind of melds biostatistics and epidemiology. Tell us more about the research that you've been doing and the work that you've been interested in in global oncology in particular. Okay. Well, um, I'm relatively new to Yale. I came to Yale a little over a year ago to start a new center here at Yale called the Center for Methods on Implementation and Prevention Science. And the focus of our center is as exactly as the name says. We want to work on biostatistics statistical methods, as well as other sorts of research methods, health economics, and so forth, to uh, strengthen our ability to learn about how best and how efficiently and cost-effectively we can prevent diseases such as cancer, which is responsible for uh, the deaths of at least uh, a quarter, if not a third, of all Americans today, and a, and a rapidly increasing number of people around the world. And so tell us more about your research. Oh, yeah. So my research, um, be before I came to Yale, I was one of the lead statisticians for three large epidemiologic cohorts based at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Harvard Medical School called the Nurses' Health Study, the Nurses' Health Study Two, and the Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study. And between these three studies, uh, we have, we've uh, been following over 250,000 male and female health professionals, um, in many cases since 1976. And every two years, these health professionals answer questions about their diet, their exercise, any kind of health events that have happened, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, exercise, and so forth. And um, um, between the three of these studies, they've been a major source of information about the risk factors for cancer may be one of the strongest sources in the country, if not the world. And we've learned a lot about diet and cancer, exercise and cancer, um, all sorts of things. And I've been um, a researcher and contributor to many of these studies. 
And so tell us how that kind of transitions to global oncology. Yeah. So that's a great question because, in fact, what happened for me personally is I got to a certain point in my life where I had worked on uh, basic research on the causes of cancer for I would say 30 to 35 years, and I felt like I now wanted to move on to how do we translate the information that we've learned to actually prevent cancer. And I felt that we've learned so much already. Let's not the there isn't more to learn. There very much is. But I'd like to move on in sort of this next phase of my career in maybe more being involved more directly in sort of, quote, saving lives, making a difference, preventing cancer. So um, I happen to know that there are certain cancers that are very highly preventable and others that um, we still need to learn more about. So, for example, and now we'll get into global oncology, one of the most preventable cancers in the world is cervical cancer. In fact, it's so preventable that except in very low-income pockets around the United States, almost no women, almost no women get cervical cancer anymore in this country, and even even fewer die of it. But that's not true at all um, in the rest of the world. Um, So we have what's called low- and middle-income countries. It's a World Health Organization, maybe a United Nations designation. And it's based on the gross national product of countries. And the high-income countries are basically those in North America, excluding Mexico and uh, Western Europe. And middle-income countries are countries like Mexico, Mexico, um, Argentina, I think India is now a middle-income country, China is a middle-income country, countries in Eastern Europe are middle-income countries, and then there are low-income countries such as, say, some of the other countries in Central America, Nepal, um, many of the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. And so basically, in these low- and middle-income countries, in which probably a good probably four-fifths of the world's population resides, cervical cancer is the first or second leading killer of women. So here's a situation where we know how to prevent it because nobody's getting it here. Or I shouldn't say nobody, but very few women are getting it here. And yet these, these preventive interventions are not taken up in to prevent uh, four-fifths of the women in the world to also not get and die from cervical cancer. So that's where we get into implementation and prevention science and global oncology. And um, the two ways to prevent cervical cancer, one probably most women in the audience uh, would know about because most of us have had, you know, many pap smears. And um, through pap smears, they can detect what are called early uh, precancerous lesions of the cervix and um, do a very kind of local uh, removal of those lesions so that uh, cervical cancer never develops. And then once a woman has had um, some of this, then she's screened more frequently and um, we make sure she doesn't redevelop the lesions. And if she does, we remove them and so forth. And that's how, that's the main reason why um, women, um, say in the United States, very few of us get cervical cancer. Um, it's turned out for reasons that are not well understood that pap smears don't work well in low and milling 
low-income countries. I actually personally feel like it could be studied more, but the reason given um, when I talk informally with colleagues is that um, it uh, requires a high level of training, a, a very strong laboratory infrastructure, um, very good linkages between the clinical wards and the laboratories so the cells are looked at in a timely manner and so forth. Um, so other methodologies have been proposed for preventing uh, cervical cancer in low and middle income countries instead of the pap smear. And one of these is called VIA, um, which involves uh, painting of the cervix with acetic acid. That's what the IA part is. And acetic acid is actually just vinegar, just like the vinegar you can buy off the shelf in a supermarket and is reasonably uh, well available in most well and middle income countries. If um, if a woman's cervix has um, precancerous lesions, that parts of her cervix for some reason turn white, and the and the health provider, whether it's a doctor or a nurse or even a lower level, can see that um, through standard methods of performing um, gynecological exams, and then a procedure called cryotherapy can be performed, which involves taking a um, pen attached to a tank of liquid oxygen or some other cooled gas and basically just sort of killing those areas of the cervix where the white cells were. And, and that method is very low technology. We're talking about uh, vinegar and a tank uh, with a little uh, tube at the end. So it doesn't require electricity. It doesn't require power. It doesn't even require running water. Uh, in order to perform this procedure. And it's um, been shown in fairly large clinical trials in India to be very uh, safe and effective in preventing the development of cervical cancer in large populations of women. So you might think, okay, end of story, we're done. But actually, it's not that simple because even after we find an alternative more culturally and economically uh, uh, sustainable, um, approach to pap smears, that doesn't mean that uh, women that we have on the demand side, that women all over the world are going to be lining up to have this test, or that providers still have to be trained. They have to be trained to perform the acetic acid um, aspect. They have to uh, be uh, trained to uh, uh, detect what is the what are the white areas, if any, versus not. And then they or some higher level health provider needs to have be trained on cryotherapy. So it still requires um, various aspects. It's not just a matter of, say, pushing a button, but it's, it's believed to be a promising approach in low- and middle-income countries where there might be uneven laboratories and training of health providers and so forth. And in fact, um, I, along with um, um, Dr. Sangini Sheth, who's a OBGYN at the Yale Cancer Center, who um, is involved in the screening and treatment for cervical cancer right here in New Haven, 
Raven, and then two colleagues in Nepal who just visited at the end of August, Dr. Archana Shrestha and Dr. Sunil Ashakia, have a pilot grant from the Yale Cancer Center where we're looking at the barriers and facilitators toward to the implementation of this VIA screen and treat approach in the hill areas um, outside of Kathmandu in Nepal, where there's a fairly high cervical cancer incidence and mortality rate. What have you found so far? Well, um, it's the very beginning of the study. So um, right now, um, I really can't say too much about it. It's um, We just received our funding maybe three or four months ago. And the way things work, which I think is a good thing, is um, researchers um, can't just, um, say in the United States, can't just uh, say, oh, we're going to do a study in Nepal. Let's go. Pack your suitcases. Um, there's a lot of ethical um, oversight to conduct such studies to ensure that we don't subject people who are maybe more vulnerable, poorer, not as educated, and so forth in other parts of the world to unnecessary procedures or unsafe procedures. So right now we're in the process of filling out our institutional review board applications, both at Yale, at um, Dooley Cal Hospital in Nepal, and with the Nepal Research Council to get permission to do this study and ensure all these various parties that provide oversight that this is a study that, you know, would be beneficial to its participants and uh, provide um, useful knowledge to Nepal and ideally um, others around the world. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly uh, it sounds like promising research that can help us to understand cervical cancer and means of of finding it at an earlier stage when it's most treatable. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute, and then when we come back, learn much more about global oncology with my guest, Dr. Donna Spiegelman. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Donna Spiegelman. We're talking about her research and global oncology, and right before the break, Donna, you were talking about cervical cancer, a cancer that very few women die from here in the United States. Um, and one of the reasons you mentioned was that we have pap smears, and that that really has not been something that has taken off in the third world. Mm -hmm. And many low- to middle-income countries 
suffer from a, a lack of infrastructure, a lack of highly trained me medical professionals, such that pap smears have not really um, taken hold. Um, but one of the uh, one of the methods that uh, has become popularized um, and that you're studying in Nepal is visual inspection with acetic acid or VIAA, um, which is simply painting the cervix with vinegar um, and finding these precancerous lesions that then can be essentially frozen um, so that they can be treated at an early stage. Are there other prevention strategies for cervical cancer that we have here in the U.S. that might not be available in low to middle income countries? Yeah, nice. Um, there are. And the other one is HPV vaccination. So uh, cervical cancer is caused by the human papillomavirus. That, that's what HPV stands for. And it, uh, what that means when I say caused is that it's a necessary cause, meaning it's it seems to be almost impossible um, for a woman to get cervical cancer unless she's been infected with HPV. But many, 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 in fact, the majority uh, of women who are infected with HPV don't go on to get cervical cancer. And it's, it also turns out that cervical, I mean, that HPV, the HPV virus has multiple subtypes, and some subtypes have been found to be more virulent than others. And one thing we don't know um, that's an object of research around the world is the, do the malignant subtypes vary from one country to another, since viruses are like ecosystems, and how they may grow and evolve in different subsets of populations might be different. So we don't really have the answer to that right now, but it does seem like there are several, at least, I think, four, if not more, that have been identified as the most malignant HPV subtypes around the world. And so this is a vaccine. Um, many of you in the audience might know, if you have daughters, that um, it's a vaccine that young girls, it's recommended that they um, get um, at at around the age between 12 and 13 with the idea that um, to be absolutely the most maximally effective, um, it should be before girls initiate their sexual debut. Um, but obviously, many girls don't initiate their sexual debut that early, um, and um, it's also not clear. It's an object of active interest whether even after the sexual debut, it seems that the vac vaccine might still be effective. It may not be as effective, but it still seems to be effective. And I'm saying all of this because I want to encourage um, parents, mothers and fathers in the audience whose daughters haven't been vaccinated, even if... They might have been past their sexual debut, or they might be 16, um, or even beyond. It appears that the virus, I mean, the vaccine could still be beneficial, and I would encourage you to seek that out for your daughters. Um, around the world, um, there's been trials of the vaccine, and um, I, maybe uh, we don't know for sure what the uh, endpoints are uh, in terms of uh, giving a vaccine to a girl at the age of 12. She may not develop cervical cancer or pre-cervical um, precancerous lesions until she's 35 or 40. So um, what the way th the research has gone, it's it's a little bit of like. Uh, 
get the vaccine to the girls, show that the vaccine is beneficial, at least in some subset, and then over very long-term follow-up, we'll hopefully see, reap the benefits in, say, 15 or 20 years from now in lower cervical cancer rates and lower rates of precancerous lesions and so forth. So there are studies around the world, um, again, not of the vaccine itself, because the vaccine is already proven safe and effective, but there are implementation trials about um, what's the best way to get this vaccine out to girls around the world. Is it through schools? Is it through health clinics? Is it going house to house in communities and villages? What are the barriers? Are people refusing the vaccine? What are, what are the issues? If so, how can we address them? But um, in the United States, I think the vaccination rate is you know, sort of disappointingly low, like maybe 20 percent, um, whereas, say, in Australia, it's extremely high, like 80 or 90 percent. It's very high in Brazil, a Catholic country, um, of something like 80 or 90 percent. So there's quite a lot of variation around the world. And another area of research for us in the Yale Global Oncology Program is looking at the uh, distribution of vaccination rates around the world and trying to um, ascertain what are the factors, even within a country, that explain differences in vaccination rates as well as between countries. And so do you have data on that? Um, because one would think that, you know, I'd be very curious when we think about, and you had mentioned before the break, that in low to middle income countries, cervical cancer is often the number one or number two killer of women, uh, particularly when it comes to cancer. Exactly. And so one would wonder in low to middle income countries whether there is an uptake of the vaccine um, or whether there are barriers, uh, whether that's cost related to the vaccine or whether that's cultural barriers um, that are at play. Yeah, so we have some data. I've been working with some colleagues using data from Brazil, which is well known to have a very high vaccination rate. But there's still quite a variability from state to state within Brazil. And, you know, as we might guess, people are people all around the world where the rates are lower are in the states that are lower income, that are more rural. And, you know, I'll say today on Indigenous Peoples Day that have higher proportions of indigenous people living in them. So um, to uh, have more equity in uh, HPV vaccination uptake in Brazil, well, first of all, it's good to note this. And then um, ideally, stakeholders and policymakers and even politicians might devise strategies to uh, even the playing field in terms of access to this important health intervention within Brazil. In India, on the other hand, and this is a little bit of her hearsay, but um, what happened is sort of similar to what happened here, which was that there was a big vac HPV vaccine trial and a girl died who was in the trial. Um, it's been very well looked at, and the cause of death of the girl seems by all possible uh, reviews of her medical records and so forth had nothing to do with the HPV vaccine. But there's a lot of fears in countries about these kind of um, newer technologies and medicines and so forth being exported from, say, the United States or Europe into other countries. And the word got out throughout the country of India that this vaccine killed somebody. And so there's there's a lack of 
of enthusiasm in India um, for vaccination at this time, from what I understand, even though cervical cancer is the first or second leading cause of cancer death among women in India. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's certainly tragic. And I, I think that there are, you know, there are uh, beyond that, uh, there were issues with regards to the trial. And you had mentioned uh, the importance of ethics, for mm -hmm. example. And, Very important. Um, and, you know, in that Indian trial, one of the other things that had happened was that there was some questions as to whether uh, one patient had had, or I think it was actually three patients who had had their informed consent form signed after the fact. Uh, and so there were all of these issues, on top of which, from a cultural perspective, there was the whole issue of cervical cancer being sexually transmitted. And of course, parents don't think that their kids could possibly be sexually active, mm -hmm. and therefore the vaccine would not be needed because, of mm -hmm. course, their children are not sexually active. Um, and and those kinds of issues. And layered on top of that was uh, all of these trials that you've mentioned, which have uh, proven the efficacy of the cervical cancer vaccine, um, have largely been done in uh, United States, in European countries, but haven't really been proven in the Indian population. Right. And on top of that, um, let's just layer on while we're at it, um, was the, the cost of, of the vaccine. And so, you know, this whole issue of we have finally something that is very effective in preventing cervical cancer but how do we actually get it into a population where it can be of benefit? And so peeling back all of the layers of the onion mm -hmm. um, really becomes problematic. Yeah. Yeah, it's very complicated. And, you know, interestingly, some of the reasons you're giving and uh, for the lack of uptake take in India are very similar to reasons for lack of uptake in the United States. Yeah. Tell us about um, other research that you've done in other cancers uh, in terms of prevention and, and the strategies for, for improving uh, global cancer care. Mm -hmm. So I think I want to bring up in the limited time that we have, even though my own personal focus is uh, about uh, is focused towards prevention, um, there are really big issues in in treatment in cancer around the world as well. So, like for example, um, we have the term palliative care, which is very important for cancer um, and other diseases as well, and it in usually involves taking people. Out out of the terrible pain they might otherwise be experiencing in their last stages of cancer. And even in the United States, with all our technology and medicine that's so fantastic, you know, a quarter to a third of the population is still dying of cancer. So at some point, we all may need this palliative care, and it's very good. It involves the use of opioids. And um, opioids are a um, basically, in many countries, a banned substance in most low- and middle-income countries um, because um, as much leakage as we've had in the United States that's caused our own opioid epidemic, health leaders and health policymakers and um, government leaders are even more afraid in their own countries to bring in these kinds of palliative care agents when they're not, they're afraid they're not going to be able to control what happens to them. And the next thing they know, they'll be, they maybe they'll be sold on the black market or they'll be um, sold, um, um, 
of traded in different ways. They, they're very, very fearful of it. So they'd rather just completely ban them than um, right now than do anything else. And even I can just say personally, I've had colleagues, say, in Mexico and other countries who have had relatives who have um, progressed to late-stage cancer. And these are, you know, very well-paid people on the highest echelons in, of society, and they could not get palliative care for their own relatives without going out of the country. So that's the kind of situation it is. So just think of all of the millions of people who around the world are dying in pain because there is literally no palliative care. Similarly, um, I know that um, uh, even in terms of cancer treatment, things like like surgery, there are great surgeons all around the world. I think that's been very well documented, say, for example, by Atul Gawande, um, where surgeons can kind of perform their craft without a lot of technology, good surgeons. And good surgeons in low- and middle-income countries are really good surgeons oftentimes because they've learned to perform surgery without all of the AIDS and CAT scans and MRIs and lasers and everything else that we have and that we even take for granted. Um, but um, in general, things like radiation and chemotherapy are also um, uh, available or inavailable um, in a very uneven way in many low and in middle income countries around the world. And then in addition, um, the training of oncologists would parallel that. Like what's the point of learning how to use an MRI machine if you're not gonna have one in your hospital? Dr. Donna Spiegelman is the Susan Dwight Bliss Professor of Biostatistics at the Yale School of Public Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.